Hello, you're listening to Culture Call, the life and arts podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, an editor in New York. Coming up on today's show. I grew up in Southeast London, you know, very working class family, wasn't exposed to art or galleries or museums. So it wouldn't make sense to me to create work for the institutions that weren't exposed to someone like myself as a child, because then I know I'm not exposing my work to potential little chantelles out there in the world. You know, when you're having just a really intense time of life and then someone asks you, how are you? And you're like, okay. What version of the answer do you want? Do you want the full (laughs) download? The version that thousands of people will be listening to. (laughs) Welcome to the last episode of Season 3 of Culture Call. Right before recording this, I looked outside my window in New York, and it was snowing for the first time. The snow was flurrying. It wasn't going down. It was like frenetic. It was spinning in every direction. It was suspended in midair, and none of it was landing. It looked like chaos. It reminded me of us, honestly, in 2020. It was stressful. But when I looked closer, there was a pattern. It was going in a direction. It was following the wind. And it eventually landed, and that gave me some comfort. When the season started in early October, I had this guiding question of what's possible now that wasn't possible before. Back then, we knew a lot had broken in 2020, but we really didn't know where we were going yet. In these 12 very eventful weeks, I've spoken with creators and thinkers, both inside and outside the Financial Times. And they've given us a lot of pretty different perspectives on that question. And I've been nodding a lot in my makeshift audio studio. You've probably heard a lot of, mmm, yeah, (laughs) a lot of those. There have been a lot of Instagram chats, uh, a lot of emails back and forth with you all, our listeners, who've really added depth and brilliance to this season. So thank you for joining me. There was one missing piece, and that's Grizz. Griselda Murray-Brown is my co-host. She's the one with me in that Culture Call logo, and she's been on maternity leave. But I am very pleased to say she will be joining me at the end of this show to wrap up the season. Before that happens, I would love to introduce our last guest of the season. This is somebody I've been wanting to have on for a long time. She's an artist, and her name is Chantelle Martin. I came across Chantel by chance one night a few years ago, back when New York was a place you could do crowd things. The comedian Alana Glazer was interviewing her at the 92nd Street Y. That's a cultural institution here. My friend invited me, and I thought it was going to be funny, so I went. It turns out it was more than funny, actually. Chantel made me think about creativity in a broader way, and I still think about that talk on a pretty regular basis. Chantel draws. She draws on everything. She often uses a big black marker on white backgrounds. And actually, you should look her up now if you're not driving. Search Chantel Martin and you'll get a sense of her work. What you'll see is that her work is deceptively simple. It's big, bold lines and dashes. It has faces and words and phrases and loops. It has a lot of movement. And it's playful. She draws on her clothes, on her body, on walls, on floors, on canvases. Recently, she drew a mural on the asphalt of a massive playground in a New York public elementary school in Queens. You can see the whole thing from above as a piece of art, or if you're a kid and you're on it, it affects how you play. Chantelle often draws live, and the act of her drawing is a part of the art. 
She's done a lot of collaborations with institutions and brands. She's drawn with Kendrick Lamar while he performed. My personal favorite is something she did with the New York City Ballet, where she interviewed dancers, and then she drew onto 36 canvases while they danced. And then those canvases were hung in the windows of Lincoln Center over this huge mural she did on the floor. It was very grand, actually. I've linked to a few photos of it in the show notes. Chantelle is transatlantic, like the show. She's from London, but she's based in New York now, and she spent a few years in Japan. You'll hear the story of how she got here in the conversation. It's great. And she's only 40, but she's got her first career retrospective up now at the New Britain Museum of American Art in Connecticut. That's up through April 2021. I wanted to have Chantelle on last to share the energy I experienced when I first saw her at that talk. She asked this question in her work, who are you? Not who do you want to be, not what do you do, nothing about the constructs that have been built up around us, but just who are you? It's a simple question, but it's kind of a nice one to consider after the year we've had. Okay, let's get into it. Chantelle, welcome. Thank you for joining me on Culture Call. Cool, thanks for having me. It's a good way to start my day. (laughs) Great. So just to start, you know, our listeners are from around the world. Most of them are split between the U.S. and and Britain. And some know your work well, and some may have never seen it. And I, I could describe it all I like, but I'm curious how you would describe it. Yeah, it's funny. I often feel like I'm split between the U.K. and uh, the U.S. as well. <laughs> but, um, you know, essentially, I yeah. describe my work as a foundation of lines, words, languages. It's simple in its appearance. It's mostly line work, Mm. mostly black and white, but, you know, that's only a foundation and, you know, foundations can be built upon. And so that could be in the form of code or clothing or murals or conversations. It could be dance or it could be lecturing. But essentially the idea is that within those lines, There's this journey of asking questions about self and identity. It's about connecting. It's about experiences. Mm. A lot of people call your work stream of consciousness. Do you like that? Like, does that ring true to you? You know, I do like that because in a way, the real way that I extracted my style or my process or my identity was through that practice. When I first moved to Japan, I had this notebook, which I would draw in and it became like my diary. A friend had seen this very detailed drawing I was doing in my notebooks and invited me to do visuals to a band. So I said, well, you know, I'm drawing so small now and so detailed. So what if I draw under an overhead presenter or an OHP and then that's projected on the band? And when you're drawing live, you are essentially drawing stream of consciousness because you're not, you don't have time to think, you don't have time to plan, you don't have time to hesitate. You only have time to draw and make these lines and, and, be in the flow. And it changed my life. It changed my process. And it's kind of a magical moment for me. And I I became hooked. What changed it? Well, you know, it's the first time I was put in this experience where all those insecurities and that voice in my head were made quiet. Mm. Because if there's an audience there waiting for something to appear on the screen, if you're there being like, I'm not good at this, people are better than me. Like, why am I even here? Nothing happens. Right. But if you just start drawing and you're just really in the moment, there's something so free and magical about that. And that's what really changed my life. Yeah. Um, Can you tell me a little about 
the process of drawing with an audience? I don't know if it feels like a performance to you. How does that add to it or affect it? Yeah, you know, ultimately what it does is exposes the process, but also shows that there's still magic behind. I think a lot of artists are scared to show the process they hide that away and then suddenly you have this artwork that appears on a wall and for me there feels like there's a distance there not to Mm. say that that's a wrong way to work but I feel like there's more of a connection and more of an experience if I can pull the audience into the actual making of it and they feel a part of it and for me that's what art is what is it about the line that compels you I love the line because it's so honest. You can't hide, you know, and it's also so accessible. The line is something literally everyone on the planet, doesn't matter how abled you are, you can create a line. But then I love that if you can make a line confident and recognizably yours, there's so much work that goes into that. It's so simple, but it's so profound at the same time. Yeah. There's many videos of of you drawing and it's kind of mesmerizing. It feels as compelling to me as your art or like it's part of your art. It feels very confident and very focused in and determined. And I was listening to an interview where you said it feels like a race. Mm. I'm curious if you can explain what it feels like. Yeah. So my most recent drawing was at the New Britain Museum of American Art, where I have my first museum retro show. And as a part of that show, I did a 40 foot by 16 foot site specific Mm. drawing in the museum. And the museum was like, okay, we can, you know, we'll give you two weeks to do this. Is that enough time? And I did it in two hours. And (laughs) and for me, it is a race because essentially, if it takes any longer than that, it means that I'm giving myself too much time because of course you can move your hand over the surface area of a 40 foot by 16 foot wall in two hours. You know, if you just wave Mm. your arms around, you could cover that whole space. So now imagine you're waving your arms around, but you're leaving a line behind. I've learned how to be super efficient when I'm drawing in the way that I move my body, in the way that I angle myself, in the way that I pull the pen or push the pen. It's the the most efficient way to move that Mm. line in the fastest way, to get everything out before I start to think too much about it. Yeah. I actually saw you draw live once. I went a few years ago to a talk that you did at the 92nd Street Y with Alana Glazer. And two years later, I'm like, I think about that conversation like all the time. And one of the things that I think about all the time is um, at one point you said to the audience, okay, if you can draw, put your hand up. Um, And there were like over a hundred people there. And I'd say about five to 10 people put their hand up. And you said something along the lines of like, that's a shame. Of course you can. We all can. And, you know, my nieces and nephews are all under seven and they're much more creative than me in that way. They're so much freer. And I think there was something about the loss there, like that spoke to me that like so many of us have lost this creative outlet that would help us process or would help our brains. And yeah, I still feel sort of constrained creatively. And I'm wondering, like, why does that happen? Where does it get lost? It's a good question. And uh, I like to ask the question, can you draw? You know, even in a creative audience, a lot of people won't put their hand up. And I think it's bizarre because we are all given for free this tool as children that allows us to extract ourselves, that allows us to explore the world that allows us to calibrate ourselves with what's going on around us that allows us to have this connection between our head and our hand 
Mm-hmm. And along the way, it's taken from us or trained out of us or taught that that's not for us. And, yeah. and it's done by mostly adults around us that when you're a child and, and you're drawing and you say, this is a house, and then your parent or your teacher or family member says, well, that's not a house. This is how you draw a house. And, and then you look at right. your siblings or your friend's house and it looks like what they said. And now you start to believe that they can and you can't. And it's the beginning of you not believing in yourself. It's the beginning of that gift of being able to extract your insides to the outside. It's being taken away from you. Yeah. Art is so foundational as we grow up, right? Like we are in art classes for many years of our lives because it helps our brains develop and it helps us process. Yeah. But I, and then it just does. But I yeah. also wonder about that, you know, because when I think back to my art class, you know, we looked at Picasso or Monet or Magritte and we were made to sit there and copy these works and learn that these were important works and it was all about the external the outside world these people that are long dead that we have no connection to you know I feel like art is always from the outside in instead of the inside out and that there's a much more benefit if if we flipped it around yeah um how do you do that (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, you, you teach children differently, you know, instead of saying, here's a bunch of books or a bunch of websites of, of other artists to look at, let's do a lot of group exercises or individual exercises that extract from you. And you just have children creating either blindfolded or to music and making shapes and making marks, and making lines. If you do that yeah. enough, They create enough work where you then get to start to have that power of reflection where you can look back at all of the work that they've individually created and start to look for the recurring words or shapes or patterns or colors Mm. or themes or symbols that they're using. And these are what essentially make up their style or their identity or their fingerprint. And that's, you know, what you're looking for as a creative person or as an artist or even just as a, a normal individual to see what is always coming up in you over time when you're making marks. Yeah, yeah. That's so interesting because I find that art and the business of art and the art world, the older and more conscious you get, the more you realize that it's quite exclusive. Mm. And uh, even though art is so fundamental, (laughs) when you hit a certain point, you're almost not welcome anymore. And And your work is very welcoming. Is that on purpose? How do you feel about it? You know, I think it's important to say that, you know, art and the art world and the art market, they're all very different things. And I think there's facades around them all. You know, I I grew up in uh, Southeast London, you know, very working class family, wasn't exposed to art or galleries or museums or any types of those institutions. So it wouldn't make sense to me to create work for predominantly institutions that weren't exposed to someone like myself as a child, because then I know I'm not Mm. exposing my work to potential little chantelles out there in the world. Right. And, and also I'm only where I am because I believed in myself and I imagined a future for myself that no one else did. I've never put myself in boxes. And so I wouldn't Mm. want to continue to put myself in the boxes, but a lot of these Art worlds are about that. They're about categorizing people. They're about controlling people. They're about putting them in a box. It's about controlling their market for the value of commerce. And, you know, a lot of artists that work with these big galleries, they're, they're so limited in what they're able to do and say. 
Whereas I have the freedom to do whatever I want because I do it on my terms. And my terms is that I want to work on any project I'm excited about that I have time mm -hmm. to do. I want to do projects that morally and ethically align with where I'm coming from. I want to do projects that value me. I want to do projects that expose my work to a different demographic. I want to do projects that allow me to make something that I couldn't do by myself. Yeah. And the form of those projects might be a collaboration with a brand or an institution or with a scientist or a photographer or with someone that codes. It, it could be anything. And that's the exciting thing about it is that it could be a ballet. You know, I'm not putting myself in yeah. a box. I'm just saying, these are my rules for engagement and I'll do whatever I want to do in any medium and any industry out there. And the result is, is work that I'm proud of. Mm. And my newest project is a collaboration with the Whitney Museum shop, where we created a whole line of really beautiful product from mm -hmm. key tags to posters, to postcards, to neon pieces, to playing cards. These are works where you can walk into the museum. You don't have to pay to go up to see the art, go to the shop and spend, you know, $4.50 up to thousands of dollars but take out something that is meaningful and it's not selling out because I've ticked mm. all of my boxes. Art is there for the benefit of the masses, for, for culture. And I, I think sometimes we overlook that. Yeah. It's interesting to think about like what selling out means when it comes to art, because um, well, I don't know. I mean, what does, sell, what does selling out mean? You know, it's a good question. And, you know, I don't hear people using it in a lot of other industries. And you know, for, for me, it's interesting because I'm an individual artist. I went to Central St. Martins. I went to a very fancy art school, um, but still it didn't give me the tools to be able to survive as an independent artist. You learn mm -hmm. nothing about business or taxes or how to manage yourself in the real world. And then you're an artist in the real world and there's no help. There's no support. Yeah. And everyone's trying to exploit you. If I was a startup, I would make a five-year plan. I would have had, had, had a startup lawyer. I would have a, an office. I, <laughs> okay. I would have all of these things. But me as an individual artist, if I figure out how to support myself, and if I figure out how to pay my bills, my taxes, and if I figure out how to do all my legal work, and if I figure out how to do all these other things, then suddenly I'm a sellout. And it's so bizarre yeah. because... I think it's ingrained within the creativity. And, and I've had this argument with people that have been traditionally, you know, from very wealthy backgrounds and well-educated who say, you know, our artists should be only creative. And, and when they start to talk about money, then, then they miss the point and, or it takes them away from their rawness or their creativity. Right. And I say, yeah, that's great. If you, you know, they have a family lawyer or someone that can take care of all of those things. But at the end of the day, you know, the modern day artists were trying to pay rent. So it's mm -hmm. important that we have some knowledge in all of those areas to protect ourselves, just as any yeah. other company protects themselves. You know, when I work with any institution, museum or gallery or brand, they give me a big contract, but then they don't expect the artist to have a lawyer to protect themselves. Mm. And, and so, you know, it's an interesting space. So I think, you know, essentially... Selling out is when the galleries don't get their 50%. You know, selling out is when, you know, people think you work with a brand and you get paid 100% because, you know, you've cut out the middleman. But now yeah. I make a point where if I work with any institution or if I work with any company, 
I try and leave any of the paperwork or any of the structure in a better place than I found it. Mm. Because then that means the artist behind me has an easier time. Yeah, you're protecting fellow artists. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You said you went to Central St. Martin's and then Japan. Can you tell me a little about where you grew up and how it brought you there? Yeah, so... I grew up in this lovely place called Thamesmead, which is in Southeast London. If you've ever seen Clockwork Orange, it's one of these big estates or projects. Mm-hmm. And essentially, you know, I, I went mm-hmm. to school where, you know, the kids that came from where I came from were automatically put in bottom classes or looked down upon. And, you know, there weren't, wasn't that much encouragement for us. And so when I was younger, I was, I was a runner. I, I thought I could run for, for England or something like that. But <laughs> I was also interested in art and an art teacher told me don't apply for art school Chantel because you won't get in and I was like well uh. this guy's telling me that I can't do this so no one's telling me what I can do so I just applied for art school and it was Campbell College of Arts and I got in and it was magical it changed my life it was the first time I was mm. in a place where people looked different where people were openly gay where people you know did any of the things that allowed you to get beaten up where I'm from And so I think art school is this place where as a weirdo, you go there and for the first time in your life, you realize that there's other people different like yourself. And, you know, the next hardest thing or place to go after was this place called Central St. Martin's. And my friends at Campbell were like, well, my parents went there and my grandparents went there. And it's, you know, (laughs) and I was like, well, I can apply to go there too. So I applied and I got in and, Mm. you know, graduated at the top of my year. But the main thing is I, I met a lot of students from Japan and and a lot of those students became my friends and I started to get interested in this place which at the time felt like it was on the other side of the planet and I was totally taken by it you know it was the first place I went Mm. to where I don't know if it sounds silly but you know it it was magical because everyone was the same race but they were different you know like (laughs) there was mums and businessmen and children and fishermen and but they're all the same race It's interesting. It was interesting because I was just this little half black, half white kid growing up in England where everyone's like, what are you? Where are you from? And then suddenly I went to a place where that didn't matter anymore, where people would ask me where I was from and I would say London. And then they would say, oh, okay. And then I'd be like, oh, there's no follow-up questions. And and I (laughs) think that really drew me into freedom. I felt like I was free for the first time. Mm. And So I just was like, I need to go back to that place. I need to go back to that place. I need to go back to that place. And so I ended up in 2003 moving to Japan to teach English to a very small town called Komaki, which is in Nagoya. Um, Very countryside, not many foreigners there. And uh, yeah, that's where I kind of started my Japan life there. Yeah. And then you moved to the U.S. where I imagine you were asked, what are you again, just based on the way America, I don't know, thinks about race. What was that like? You know, it's interesting. It was a reverse culture shock um, coming from Japan where everyone's like so polite. And and then, you know, just racism I experienced here, like pretty much straight away from people or just people treating you badly. And to be honest, you know, like when I came for a vacation to New York um, for the first time, I loved it, you know, because I was surrounded by friends and I was going out and doing things. But when I moved here as a as an individual, as an artist, you know, I'm out in the world doing things like going to the IRS office or something to get my social security card. Yeah. And people would treat me badly because you're, mm. you're this young brown or black kid. And then I would open my mouth and then they'd be like, oh, wait, where are you from? 
oh, you want to speak to me now like a human being? And so that was a really interesting experience to have people treat you like crap. And then you open your mouth and suddenly they're nice. And I think that's just how it is here. You know, like people say, yeah, New York, it's so multicultural. There's people from everywhere, but people have a place. Mm. Like you're at your friend's house and you open the door and people ask you if you're the new housekeeper Um, or, you know, just random things like that was my first experience of of coming to New York. And, you know, Japan, tons of racism there, but you, you know, you're not trying to fit in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I lived in London for about three years and learned that there, it was sort of a different type of racism in the UK. As you were talking, I was thinking about this collaboration you did with your grandmother, um, which involved cross-stitching. And you had said that, um, to be black in the UK, you're British, but not English, um, that you can be considered British and not English. And I guess I'm curious about, about that. Yeah, so I collaborated with my grandmother for many years, 10, 15 years, Dot Martin. Yeah. And she used to make, you know, these needlepoint pieces when we we were children. And when I got to art school, you know, I asked her to sew me two pieces, which said half white, 1980, and half black, 1980, in black and white, and white and black. And she sewed them for me, and then she asked, what else? You know, that sparked this collaboration. But the collaboration was about also our cross-racial, cross-generational relationship to each other. You know, this is my white grandmother who's had a very different experience to me. So I ended up writing to her from, you know, wherever I lived in the world, London, Tokyo, or New York, and I gave her instructions to sew a piece and then she would sew it and send it to me wherever I lived in the world. Mm. And so, for example, you know, I asked her, sew me, go home, any color, any size, and she sewed it, and then she also did another one that said, come home. <laughs> and um, and then I would call her. I'd pick up the phone, and I'd call her, and I'd be like, you know, I just received Go Home. Thanks so much. It looks beautiful. I love the colors you chose. You know, Nan, what what do you think Go Home means? And she would be like, you know, it means go home to your family, you know, go home, have good times. Mm. And I'd be like, do you know what it means to me? And she'd be like, no. And I'd be like, well, when I come home to England and to London, people tell me to go home to my own country. Mm. And then we got to have, you know, this talk about our different perspectives of life, you know, and she sewed me a couple of pieces and one said English and one said British. And I said, you know, do you realize all my brothers and sisters who are all white, they can comfortably call themselves English because it's very subtle, you know, racism in England, you know, English is almost reserved for whiteness. And for someone like myself, I would call myself British. And so I think there's all these subtleties that we, you know, got to explore through conversation and through art making and and, um, this collaboration. I love that. The cross-generational aspect, especially these days, feels so meaningful. Well, there's so much we can learn now from our grandparents. You know, if your grandparents are still alive, they probably have a craft. Yeah. They probably know how to make something. So I think it's really important now, if you have living grandparents, find out what they love to make or what they used to make, you know, kind of explore that, ask them to teach you, ask them to teach your children. Um, Because otherwise it's going to all be lost soon in a couple of generations. Yeah. I guess part of why the generational thing also feels so um, interesting to me is just that like 
we've had to slow down in this way with the pandemic and um, people started to become like bakers again to deal with the trauma from this year. Just to go back to sort of what we were talking about, about giving ourselves permission to be creative. Do you think people are becoming more artistic? Can we be? How do we be? It's funny. I did, um, I think maybe in August, I did a, a TED talk Yeah, and I did it from my couch. <laughs> yes, and, you I know, in, in, in that talk, I talk about how we can find a way to recalibrate our minds by using a simple tool. And we're seeing that. We're seeing people go back to simple tools mm. or um, simple crafts or even things like photography. And, you know, my hope is that we carry these on, you know, because we also forget very quickly. You know, once things start to have some kind of normalcy, we we start to leave those things behind. Yeah. You mentioned somewhere... Chantelle, that one of the things that drives your work is whether progress is possible. And uh, I'd love to talk about whether um, after this year you think it is. You know, one of the themes this season is that this pandemic has shown a light through all these cracks in our system that we knew were there, that many people were fighting, um, but that were exposed. Like, so much is harder to ignore. Um yeah. I'm curious to ask you the question. Oh. Do, you, do you think progress exists that will exist from all of this? No one's asked me that. I'm sort of a, a an, an optimist, I guess, at, at the core, <laughs> um, maybe an idealist. So I, I hope so. Like, I wonder whether, um, I mean, it could be like policy. I don't know if we're, we could be more open now to something like universal basic income or like actual police reform and I mean, there's something promising about the fact that more white people have had to face this white supremacy and racism that's embedded in us and are more educated now. And I don't know, there's something like maybe psychologically, we know that we as species are more adaptable than we thought. So in that way, I hope that that brings us forward. I spoke with Ai Weiwei. Uh, he was one of our my guests early in the season. And he was a little more pessimistic. He sort of said that as a species, we do the same thing over and over again, that like we don't learn. And you see in how people don't care about the refugee crisis, even though it's uncomplicated. And we just make these mistakes over and over again because we have to learn the mistakes for ourselves. And um, and I hope that that's not true. I hope we can yeah. learn from from the patterns of history. You know, I'd say thank you for being hopeful. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I try and be hopeful, but I also think about the past and, you know, you, you see writings or observations from like, you know, the 1600s in England where they talk about foreigners coming and taking their jobs. And, you know, this is hundreds yeah. of years ago and we're having these same conversations or same yeah. issues. And, and I think it comes down to two words, accountability and transparency and time yeah. and time and time and time again we're shown that if you're a big farmer or a wealthy pedophile or if you're a big corrupt government you don't have to be transparent and you don't have to yeah. be accountable you know we have in australia people blowing up first nation caves and stuff developers and then saying oh sorry my bad or, you know, we have prime ministers that start illegal wars and then say, oh, my bad, I'm going to resign and then go on a book tour. Right. If we do not have accountability 
in our governments and militaries and schools and churches. And, and if those areas are not made transparent, then there'll never be any progress. Yeah. How does that get fixed? Or what could we do? <laughs> that's, that's the big question. <laughs> you know, a question I have in my work is, or one of these repeating questions I always ask is, who are you? Who are you? Yeah. Who are you? And the first three letters of that are way, W-A-Y. Mm-hmm. And tell me, how are you finding your way in the life? Mm. How are you finding your way in this life, in your life? Tell me who you are at the core without saying what you do or where you're from or the roles that you play in life. And I yeah. think when we can start to really try and ask this question at the core of who we are, then we will start to answer what is important to ourselves. We are caught up in this world where it's about what you do and where you're from and how educated you are and how much money you have and how much affiliation or access you have. And it becomes about these exterior things. Perhaps if we start to ask children at a young age, like, who are you at the core? Who are you? Mm. Not what do you want to be when you grow up? These external things, you know, placing that baggage on them. Who are you? Like, what type of person are you at the core? If we can start to find the actual vocabulary or emotions that describe who we are at the core as people, perhaps those words or those emotions will help recalibrate us. I've been thinking about that question, who are you? Um, And I was finding it really hard to answer succinctly for myself. Um, without any external (laughs) things. And um, how do you answer it for yourself? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think the question is in itself, it's a mirror. You know, you put that that mirror out and you reflect it to the world and you get back pieces of answers that might resonate. You know, I'm, Mm. I'm a free spirit. I'm a wanderer. I'm a creative. I'm a connector. Perhaps fragments of those I can relate to. But fundamentally, Mm. what is exposed is that we don't have the vocabulary to answer that question. We just don't. And, you know, my hope is that as time goes on, we will start to find words or phrases that uh, enable us to answer it. Yeah, I have just two more quick questions. Have you found that 2020 has changed your work? Um, The New Britain Museum of American Art, where your retrospective is, it seems like your mural for them was one of the first things you drew after the pandemic. What came out? It's interesting because when I create these larger murals, it is almost like a time check of where I am physically or emotionally in a way. Mm. And so when I drew that piece titled Transparency at the museum, it felt so much denser than the work I was creating earlier in the year, which became very free and open. And it's always a surprise for me because I'm not planning the work. So when it's finished... I get to see kind of my mind or where I'm at. Yeah. Um, you know, our listeners are always looking for like cultural discovery or, or inspiration. Is there anything over this time that you found yourself uh, doing or watching or listening to or turning to? Oh, I don't want to say what I've been watching. <laughs> <laughs> involves Leah, Please. involves Leah Remini. She's oh, amazing. There you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is it about Scientology? Yes, yes. Oh, yeah, no, me too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I watched all of that on Netflix. I've been watching this old British show called New Tricks. It's on Amazon and there's like 12 seasons. It's about this detective called Sandra Pullman. And, you know, <laughs> if you like British crime, 
new tricks, very comical, lighthearted, very funny. So I've been watching that. Yeah. You know, I, I'm trying to keep creative. You know, I've been commissioned to choreograph a ballet for the Boston Ballet for next year. So, you know, I wake up every day and I'm thinking about dance or music. Wow. Um, and of course, here and there, picking up a pen, you know, if, yeah. if anything, anyone listening to this, pick up a pen, find a notebook, find some paper. And when you're watching TV or when you're talking to someone on the phone or when you're on a Zoom meeting, just draw mm. and just draw and just draw. And then kind of in a few weeks time, look back at everything you've done um, and see, see yourself, see yourself in that. Uh, Chantel, thank you so much for being on the show. This is such a pleasure, really. Cool. Thanks so much for having me. I'm here now with Griselda Murray-Brown. Hi, Grizz. Hi, Lila. <laughs> it's so good to hear your <laughs> voice. So just for new listeners, Grizz is a commissioning editor for the Financial Times this weekend magazine. For many years, she was on the FD Arts pages. And as longtime listeners will know, she founded this podcast actually in 2016. Um, I only joined a year and a half ago, and she really grew it into what it is now. This season, Grizz is busy having her first child. <laughs> Not an easy feat, just like a little thing. She took a break to do. Um, so, Grizz, it feels really weird to say welcome back because it's your show, too. But um, hi, it's so good to have you on back on the show. Oh, Lila, hi. It's great to be here. So before we get into um, the themes and motherhood and what's been going on, um, I'm curious, while we're still in the zone of the interview, I guess what stood out to you? I really liked the way that Chantel described drawing. As you said, we've been doing this podcast for a while and lots of our interviewees have been artists, but I don't think I've ever really heard someone describe drawing almost as a kind of physical performance. Like she said that her drawing has a kind of honesty because the audience can literally see her making it. Yeah. You know, I, I've been thinking about like why I wanted to have Chantel be the last guest, mm. um, why I've had her on the list for so long. She has been on your list for a while. I remember that. <laughs> for, for, yeah, <laughs> since I started. And, um, and I think that it's really that there's like a generosity to how she views the world and a little bit of a purity to how she totally yeah. sees the world. And that feels kind of refreshing, especially after like a very long and very hard year. <laughs> it's been and, a like, slog. and honestly, after a season of like very intense conversations. Mm. Yeah, I think refreshing is the right word for her. I, I agree with that. You know, there's something also about her attitude towards like the art world itself, the art establishment mm. and towards money. Like I love the way she was describing that and saying, why should she be making work to go in a museum? Um, right. when, when a museum is not a place that she felt was welcoming her when she was growing up. I had never considered that question before. And it's so true. Like, why should an artist feel honored to be in a museum? A museum needs to work for the people. I think it's the museum itself that needs to be doing the work. And the artists should not all just be kind of fawning over the museums. Yeah. Um, and you, you don't have to go through the gallery system. You can reach arguably a lot more people not doing it that route. Mm. This is a different model of having quite a lot of success as an artist. Yeah. I liked the idea of rethinking how you teach art instead of external mm. to internal, mm. like thinking about it like from internal to external, because that's freeing too. Yeah, like we don't have to sit around trying to draw like Picasso 
that's you know why why do art classes do that yeah my niece did I was drawing with my niece the other day um who's four Athena Mm -hmm. and she she was like drawing the sky and it was very important to her that the sky was just like one tiny line of blue along the top and the grass was one tiny line of green and I was trying to like give it some space and she got very upset at me (laughs) and I thought like wait am I the one who's messed up here is she like who who, who's been taught the wrong thing here but like one of us had been taught that something wasn't okay I wonder what Chantal would say about who was wrong in that situation I know I'm still trying to figure that out I honestly think that I was right in that situation (laughs) you were the child and Athena was the I was the child yeah I think Chantal would say like the sky can be anything you want it to be why does it even need to be blue which is a good point (laughs) it's a good point um so this is a place where I want to like broaden it out and talk about what a year it has been and your year has been quite different from my year so um how has it been to be a mom (laughs) you know easy question just a small question yeah I mean it's you know when you're having just a really intense time of life and then someone asks you how are you and you're like okay what version of the answer do you want? Do you want the full <laughs> yeah. download? Um, the version that thousands of people will be listening <laughs> to. What has surprised you about motherhood? Oh, it's a really good question. I mean, I think something that I didn't know, which I guess now sounds obvious, but I didn't know that I would need to get to know my baby. Like that that I wouldn't know who they, Mm. so Matilda, I wouldn't know who she was when she entered the world. Despite the fact, you know, if you're the mother and you've given birth to this baby, then you feel a sense of getting to know the baby because you can feel them kicking. Um, But actually the thing that I realized is she has her own temperament and her own personality like already. And that, and that's kind of revealed itself Mm. slowly. Um, And and yeah, I've had to be kind of patient and get to know her, I guess. And I think it's got, for me, it's got much more enjoyable as I've got to know her. Like she, mm. she's not me. She's this little person who's in a way separate. That's so interesting. You know, you do talk about sort of my baby, but yeah, she's my baby, but she's also completely herself. Like, and that's, you know, she's <laughs> her own self. And that's, it's sort of humbling. I, I don't know if that's mm. a good way of describing it, but that's been interesting. Yeah. I feel like every photo you send of, of her to me, she's got like one eyebrow up a yeah. little bit. <laughs> yeah. She's definitely, yeah, she's, she's a bit of a handful. Um, how has it changed uh, 2020 for you? I imagine that you're looking at 2020 through a really different lens or at least kind of a tilted yeah. lens. For me, it's been difficult sometimes to work out like does this feel hard or does this feel surreal because I have a newborn baby Mm. uh, because I'm a parent for the first time or is it because I'm living through a pandemic Harriet Fitch Little was saying at in the very first episode in the series about localism and about um yeah this sense of really being rooted in your local area and getting interested in local issues and politics and just walking around my local area just every day, pushing a pram and just noticing things that I hadn't that I hadn't seen before, I think um, has been the real feature. It's interesting because I'm thinking about how like 
this maybe would have happened to you either way, just by nature of having a child, mm, yeah. um, right? It's like forced localism in yeah. some ways. Like yeah. you have your people in your mom group, your local doctor, and you're like in more regular communication with the like institutions around you when you have a baby. Yeah, I mean, I think maternity leave is is basically lockdown, isn't it? So yeah. I'm now in a kind of double lockdown situation, which is which is cool. <laughs> I'm sure that's really, yeah, it's really fun great. for you. <laughs> yeah. And we're all kind of doing it. I mm. mean, I think about what, what Harriet said a lot about this localism too, all the time, because I know so much more about my local politicians. I can recognize them on the street now. I know hmm. some of them like personally. Um, yeah. I'm aware of like the art in my community. It almost matters more. And I think about a lot of the conversations I had this season. Mm. Um, one of the themes was sort of like, how do you choose how you prioritize where to put your time and your energy and your resources, especially when so many causes are so urgent? Yeah. And um, I asked, you know, Miranda July that and Io Tillett Wright that and Ai Weiwei and Maza Mangiste. And sometimes they sounded kind of hopeless. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and yet the work was all sort of hopeful or optimistic or or pushing forward into a future where more was possible. And I'm curious how you read it listening. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point about the work expressing hope, even when the person doesn't express hope. And I wonder if people are sometimes a little bit afraid to state, like, I believe everything's going to get better because you don't want to <laughs> yeah. sound like you're naive or um, mm. not living in the real world. Yeah. Even Chantel, in the interview, she was saying, um, okay, uh, I appreciate your optimism, however. <laughs> mm. um, and it made her message even more urgent, which is like accountability and transparency are the only way that we're going to affect change. So actually the work becomes more urgent, right? Because then the work is like, okay, well, how can I show people what they need to know in order to become more empathic? Mm. I mean, just making work in itself, that's that's a hopeful act, isn't it? You wouldn't do that if you didn't think yeah. that people were going to see it and be moved by it. Um, and all mm. of the people you've been speaking to are artists of different kinds. Um, and they just wouldn't be doing anything if they didn't feel hopeful, right? Yeah. You know, Grizz, what this is really reminding me of, it's Janelle Monet's song mm. and her music video for Turntables. Yeah. And it starts with this quote from James Baldwin that's um, basically it's, I can't be a pessimist because I'm alive. To be a pessimist means that you have agreed that human life is an academic matter. Hmm. So I am forced to be an optimist. I am forced to believe that we can survive whatever we must survive. The table about to turn. The table about to turn. The table about to turn. Yeah. Uh. And this music video is both a protest song for this time mm. and an optimistic song. And there's something very empowering about watching scenes from this year of people protesting, of people voting, and scenes from this sort of Afrofuturist world in which, like, mm. Black people are really at the center of America. Got a new agenda with a new dream. I'm kicking out the old regime. Liberation, elevation, education. America, you a lie, but the whole world about to testify. I said the whole world. She says like America, America's a lie. Like 
is the American dream something that we still believe in? And I think like this year that has really been a question, hasn't it? Mm -hmm. What does America mean? An election was fought over this question. What is America? This video is kind of dealing with that. And yet it's also being optimistic. Yeah, I find that quite moving. Because it's saying like the world's about to testify. Mm. (laughs) I mean, this theme being about like what's possible now. Hmm. Yeah. uh, Is about that. Like, how could 2021 not be different? Yeah, well, I think the thing that she says is, like, change is coming. She's not saying in 2020 all the change that's about to happen has happened. You know, that's not the point at all. It's about, like, it's around the corner. And that's the powerful message, I think. Yeah. It's a great video. I think everyone should go and watch it. Mm, Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. So another recurring theme, Grizz, that I've been like dying to run by you um, <laughs> is whether it's too soon for art to depict this time. Mm. Simon Chama and Jan Daly from the FT both suggested that it, in, in uh, visual art, it, it was maybe too soon. Mm. Um, Maza said that in fiction, it was maybe too soon, but in journalism and nonfiction, maybe it wasn't. Yeah. Um, yeah. What do you think? I mean, I kind of, from that first episode with um, Miranda July, she said, you know, trying to write about the pandemic is a bit like trying to write about the experience of falling whilst you're falling at the same time. And I suppose Mm. art does need a bit of distance, but that doesn't mean that what is being made isn't really interesting. And often in its nature, it's kind of been made quite quickly. It's like a first draft and kind of scrappy in some ways. That in itself, I think, is a really useful thing to have um, around us to try and make sense of things. It doesn't bother me that um, that the art is like in draft form. Actually, mm. it's sort of exciting because we're recording history and even the process of it is going to tell us something in the future about what we were going through. Yeah, Grizz, what are you turning to these days? I've kind of started reading for pleasure again. For the first two months of of having a baby of Matilda's life, you know, I was just reading Mm. books about like how to get your baby to sleep through the night, which, you know, I don't recommend any of them. Um, (laughs) And I just felt completely overwhelmed. And I think reading like novels uh, again has made me feel kind of reassured much more than these practical baby guides and connected me to my pre-baby self. And I think in a funny way has actually allowed me to kind of relax and enjoy motherhood a bit more. And the the most recent thing I read is this book-length personal essay, I think I would describe it as. Mm -hmm. It's called Lost Cat. It's by an American writer called Mary Gateskill. I mean, it was published about 10 years ago in the magazine Granted, but it just came out this autumn as a book. It's about the writer adopting this stray kitten in Italy, taking it home to upstate New York, and then a couple of months later, it goes missing. But it's obviously not just about losing a cat. It's about what that loss taps into. And it's about the death of her father. And it's about her Mm. losing contact with these two children who she and her husband had this kind of long relationship with. And there's this line at one point in the book that she's talking about the death of a pet. And she says, and through the door of that feeling came everything else. And it's this idea Mm. that it's almost the final straw. And then And I think this happens often in life. You know, if you're having a terrible day or things have happened to you over the course of several months and you've just been burying them and then a small thing will happen, like you'll smash a plate or something Mm. and you just 
kind of lose it. And it really skillfully weaves together these kinds of loss. But also actually it doesn't minimise what it is to lose a cat. And it's quite interesting about the relationship that humans have to animals and how in a way we find it maybe easier to love an animal because there's a kind of purity and an uncomplicatedness yeah. about animals. And it's made me think quite a lot about loving a baby and what that is like. Yeah. And I loved this bit in, in Lost Cat where Mary Gateskill says that like an animal will never choose pain, but humans do. And she says, I am a person who chooses pain. Yeah. Um, but like an animal is just bent on its own survival. And a baby is like that. Like a baby, it, there's no self-inflicted suffering. It's just like she right. has needs and she wants her needs to be met. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of, it's allowed me to reflect, I think, quite a lot on kind of maternal maternal love and how how it's different and in a way less complicated than than other kinds of love. I'm not surprised to hear that the stuff that you're turning to that's speaking to you is not the like how-to baby book mm. stuff. It's the like, the what is motherhood art, like, and that's what art is for too, right? Is like to help you, yeah. um, to help you make sense of an experience as huge as Completely. this. That's also yeah. so universal. Yeah, and that's so kind of ancient. And, uh, you know, even like Sylvia Plath wrote amazing poems about becoming a mother. I'm thinking of particularly this poem called um, Morning Song. And it's funny to just read something from decades ago and to read your own experience in those words. You know, there's something mm. that you feel like is so personal and uh, strange, like the experience of kind of being woken up, startled from sleep in the middle of the night by a baby's crying, staggering out of bed with mm. like heavy breasts in order to go and feed the baby. <laughs> um, she writes about this. And I think there's a line in it where she talks about the baby's opening its mouth clean as a cat's. Um, and again, it yeah. comes back to that thing of the baby being not of the world of adult humans like that's not a reflection I could have got from the how to get your baby to sleep through the night type of books <laughs> that's a reflection from Sylvia Plath mm. um you know there's just something very reassuring about um seeing yourself depicted in art um and I yeah. think it makes you feel less alone and that's that's why we do it isn't it yeah oh I've missed you <laughs> God, there's really no other person I would have been able to um, finish this season off with. Must have been a little weird to listen to this um, season from afar. Your... No, I loved it. I I, enjoy, <laughs> yeah. I really enjoyed being a listener. Turns out it's a lot less work. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. <laughs> Thank you so much, Grizz, for coming on the show. You know that um, it's meant a lot to me. And I know that listeners were very excited to hear a familiar voice. Well, no, it's been a pleasure for me. Thank you, Lila. That's it for this week and for this season. Thank you very much for joining me on this journey. Really, it's been an honor. I would honestly love to hear what you thought of today's episode and of the season. Keep in touch with me. I'm at Lila Rap on Instagram. That's where I spend most of my internet time. I'll be there talking about books and movies and all that stuff. I'm also on Twitter at Lila Rap, and the show is on Twitter at FT Culture Call. You can also email us at culturecall at ft.com. That goes straight to me. We'll be back in 2021. While we're away, if you're a new listener, we have a very vibrant back catalog of interviews that go years back. And I may be biased, but I think they really hold up. 
You can listen through from the first episode of this season with Miranda July, or you can go back further. I've linked to a few of our favorite episodes in the show notes. If you like what you hear, the best holiday gift you can give us is a review on Apple Podcasts and a share on Instagram or Twitter or LinkedIn or Facebook or wherever you like to be. Even better is if you recommend this podcast to your friends. Thank you again and have a safe, healthy, and very happy new year. I've been Lila Raptopoulos. Culture Call is produced by Lena Prestwood at Scenery Studios, and our music is composed by Tristan Cassell Delavoie. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.